Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back. This is David Feingold, your host for The Future of Higher Education, and I'm here today with Rick Miller, the founding president of Olin College of Engineering. Rick, um, to start with, I wanted to ask you about the what was a, a, a quite high-profile part of the original model for Olin, which was to make it free for or offer a full scholarship for all the students. And, and I know that that policy changed with the um, with the financial crisis in 2008 and the need to re-examine the model. I'm curious in terms of how you and the board have thought about that. I, I get the idea of wanting to make it so that any talented student would be able to afford it, but making it totally free, that's a tough model for anyone to replicate if they don't get a half a billion dollars. So I'm just curious how you've thought about both the original model and then as it's evolved. Sure. Very good question, because that was a very central part of what the Olin Foundation had envisioned when we started this. In fact, it's part of the founding precepts that Olin should always offer its education at no cost to students who are truly deserving. So there's actually a coupling there. It wasn't just that we should make the college uh, free, um, but rather that it should be merit-based and that we reward merit. And the reward for merit is that we're investing in you. It's not that we're giving you an education. We think you will change the world, and we want to be the first to make an investment in you. So that's kind of the package. Um, we, we learned a lot about that as we started to apply it. I mean, one of the mental models that the Olin Foundation had before starting uh, Olin College was uh, Cooper Union in New York, which yep. had, um, it, it, in its beginning, it was uh, free as well, uh, not to... And to people all over the world, but to people primarily from New York City. Nevertheless, right. this was Cooper's vision. Um, what we found out is that there's good and bad things about giving things away for totally for free. Um, in our first year, when we had those Olin partner students who came and lived for a year in a construction trailers on a parking lot, we certainly weren't going to charge them for anything. Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. So they got uh, all the educational experience and the room and board, uh, all that was, was free. But the next year when we brought students in, we had those same students came back and then we added to them a group of others who got recruited to become true freshmen. Um, and they had uh, room and board as well. But we found out that food, just take food for a minute. Um, you're giving them the food. So you hire the team in the kitchen and you put the food out there. Um, students are saying, you know, it's been a long time since we had pizza. Why don't we go down to uh, the pizza shop in downtown Needham and just forget this tonight. And so that kind of thing shows up a lot. And it turns out that the sense of um, uh, responsibility for using the college's resources um, wasn't as strong as we hoped it would be. Let's put it that way. So within a short period after the very first class came through, the college 
revised its vision and said the tuition part would be free, um, but the room and board will not be free. You'd have to eat anyway if you were at home. So, but if it's a burden for you, sure, we'll make it free as well. We'll we'll have very generous uh, financial aid based on need for that. Um, and that's kind of the way we operated for quite a while. But it was it's also um, a very egalitarian thing. So while Olin provides free tuition, and, um, and this is now pre uh, two thousand and eight when the crisis hit, um, and and full need-based aid, so that uh, I'm going to guess somewhere in the neighborhood of half of all the students didn't pay a thing for going to the school. Right. Um, we still were not competitive with a lot of other schools for the caliber of uh, kids that we recruited. Um, I mean, especially there are there are aspirations that a number of engineering schools have for having uh, a higher fraction of their population be women or any other sort of category that you might think of. So, so it's not uncommon for other schools to have a special women's leadership scholarship. And, and this will have uh, more than um, tuition, room, and board. It might also involve a summer job or a research project or maybe you know, funding for a semester abroad. Or, so, so the kids didn't uniformly think of this as being automatically a great financial deal. Although it was and still is, it's just that the packaging of it was not, I think, optimal. Um, And then along came uh, the financial crisis. Okay, Um, and this was like devastating to our financial model. Uh, The college lost over a hundred million dollars in the endowment in four months, or something like this. And we would have a meeting every Wednesday, uh, first Wednesday of every month. Uh, town meeting. This is how those were created at Olin. They continue now once a semester. Uh, and I'd had the CFO get up in front and draw a graph of what's happened to the endowment in the last 30 days. And it was not looking good. Um, what to do about this? And of course, the, the, the board of trustees created a financial sustainability committee. Um, you know, the key leaders on the board that dealt with finance were on this. And the idea was, what can we do? Uh, and it was that year um, is what forged the concept of a compromise with the original concept, which was to have a uh, 50% tuition scholarship for every student, which still amounts to over $100,000 of merit-based aid to every kid that's enrolled, regardless of their family resources, and full need-based aid. So if this happens not to be affordable for your family, then we'll pay everything in and it's primarily in grants, not in loans. So it's still very generous, but it's not the same as it was before. Yeah. I would say it's not completely settled yet. Um, I think there's a lot of angst about this. Um, when the college had to, we had no choice, but to end the full tuition scholarship and replace it with the half tuition scholarship. This was not a popular move on behalf on, on, on as seen by the alumni. Uh, there's still a number of them who are very grumpy about that, um, and we, we understand. But the college's point of view was, you know, we can't what afford were the alternatives. This, uh, yeah. Just yeah. go out of business. I mean, yeah. that was pretty much it. Um, and then there is the tension, even in the boardroom, with um, is this a permanent solution now? Uh, because the Olin Foundation directors are still, still three of them still alive, have the uh, 
ability to enforce the original full tuition scholarship if they were to choose. Um, and so periodically, the board of directors, the board of trustees at OLED makes an appeal to the, um, to the surviving foundation directors who are now quite elderly um, with a request that they approve uh, an extension of this 50% tuition scholarship for another three years or something like that. Um, and no one has balked at that at this point, but I wouldn't say it's like all done now and the ink is dry and a new contract. It's still a source of tension. Um, nevertheless, I mean, the college's original vision was that it was to uh, identify and reward uh, like the best technical talent in the country, irrespective of background. So it didn't make any difference whether you were underrepresented minority or a woman or wealthy, or Bill Gates kid, if he had one, they, they would all be welcome. Kind of like, kind of like the, the um, test schools in New York City. Like Stuyvesant uh, and Bronx Science. Yeah. Exactly, but, but on a college yeah. level. Yeah, and can I ask you about the, one of the things you just said there in who the target was, was in the country. How, how did the foundation, how did you think, because obviously, particularly a free, but even a, a merit-based and, and, and a need-based scholarship package is going to attract the most talented people from all over the world. So how, how did you think about the international element in that mix? Yes. Um, well, that's a very good question. We Originally, the Olin Foundation was worried that if they just made it free and merit-based and no restrictions whatsoever, we would wind up like educating China or some other country or India, someplace where there's a lot of test schools and a lot of talented kids that don't have resources. And they thought, this is not actually what Mr. Olin's vision was. He, he wanted this school to be helpful to the United States first. And in fact, this is explained in the, in the preamble to the founding precepts, where he says the purpose of Olin is to become an important and constant contributor to the advancement of engineering education in America and throughout the world. So it has throughout the world there too, but it's not first. The first is America. We talked about that a lot and eventually decided that you can't really prepare American graduates for technical leadership in the world today without having some exposure to understanding the international dimensions to science and technology. So you couldn't just have American kids. This all resulted eventually in the concept of having a fixed percentage as the target. So right now, I think it's 10% of the incoming class. And then, of course, you can supplement that with exchange students who are going to be there not to get a degree, but to be there for a semester and take a course or two and really encourage American kids to go abroad. Um, so that's kind of where it sits now. That's great. Um, so obviously, one of the biggest measures of, of the success of the model beyond the ratings and, and the others who've come to study it is is how have the graduates done? So I, I'm curious, what what is the first now close to 20 years of data, not graduates yet, but but uh, what is it telling us in terms of their career choices, grad school, small companies, what, 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 what have they been doing and how are they doing? That's a very interesting story. I mean, there's been a lot of change in the makeup of the student body, and there's also a change in their, uh, their ambitions and their directions now too. So if you go back to, and I may have already told you this in an earlier episode, I forget, but if you looked at the makeup, the family backgrounds of the kids who were involved 
in the very first class in the Olin Partners, for example. I don't believe any of them had Ivy League roots or MIT roots. Um, And I think the most common career path for a parent was that of a nurse um, or a salaried engineer, not at the executive level in a company. That was of who they were. We fast forward to today, it's very different. Um, there, there's you know, CEO is a pretty common uh, distinction for a parent. Uh, and I think a few years ago, we did a study in something like 46% of the mothers have advanced degrees now. Um, it's a different cohort. And this has caused a lot of hand-wringing among particularly alumni who said, well, look, uh, we were risk takers when we came yeah. in. And this is because Olin was not known yet. And so- right. We were willing to try things, and now it looks like the student body is um, is more here for the rankings, you know. So it's like big badge of honor to be involved at Olin. It certainly wasn't at the beginning, so we're worried. And how do you deal with that? So you deal with it by looking at outcomes. So so is it true? I mean, uh, do the graduates not uh, pursue the same sorts of things? Um, so we've been assessing them. The school is very small, so we know basically where everybody is. And we have an assessment program that I think in its current rendition, it, uh, it involves a survey of kids six months after commencement day, uh, two years after commencement day, and five years after commencement day, and now 10 years. And of course, they're small cohorts, but we know where everybody is. So one of the things we found out is that Olin's original idea was that we're creating engineers. We're not creating people who learn about engineering. We're creating them to be engineers. Uh, and this is why the 25 to 35 design build projects in the curriculum and so forth. Graduate school was not a principal, principal interest. I mean, there are a lot of engineering schools that already focus on producing pre-doctoral programs that do really well. Right. Uh, you know, like MIT and Caltech sure. and, and Harvey Mudd does a great job of that and so on. So that's not what our focus was. So we weren't shocked when the first class had like 25% that went on for graduate school, but 75% didn't. Um, If you look at the numbers now, after about five years, something like half of them are going on for advanced education. And if I remember correctly, those who do go on for a graduate education, 25% of them go to Harvard, Stanford, or MIT. So this is like, well, we didn't see that coming. And then that also was scary, at least for me, because I know those schools, I mean, two of them I got degrees from, they don't teach like we teach. Um, Right. And the preparation of those students is very different. How is this going to work out? Um, and so we watched very carefully. And the bottom line is um, the kids do very well at these schools. I don't know any of them who has failed the qualifying exam for the PhD. But the first year of transition is abrupt and is quite um, stressful for the Olin kids because the faculty at these other schools are worried about completely different kinds of things. Now, but as you will realize, um, to, to go through a PhD program, um, there's several parts to it. The first part is getting the background information. So there are usually first and second year graduate courses, which are kind of foundational materials that brings everybody up to the same level. Um, and then there's a qualifying exam where you have to show that you learned something. And after that, it's pretty much about research. You have to define a research problem and um, pursue it to the degree where you can pers- you can persuade 
a team of uh, advanced faculty members that you're competent now and could publish in this area. So of those three phases, the first phase is hardest for Olin students because they've not had the same courses that other people sure. have. The third phase, the pursuing a research project, is easier for them. This is what they've done. They've, they, through their whole career as an undergraduate, they've had to identify problems that were important, find ways to, to know enough about it, to frame it properly, and then pursue it wherever it works out. So um, anyway, there's a, a good cohort of Olin alumni now that are teaching in many other places. And of course, with Olin, um, Olin producing only engineering graduates, number one, every alum has an engineering degree, and half of them being women, we have a lot of women PhDs in computer science and in engineering who are in great demand. So, right. and not just the women, the men are as well, but that's not an unusual thing. Um, so um, that's part of it. Another part of it, those like three quarters of them who came out the door from um, the commencement day who didn't go directly to graduate school, go into work. And what we hear routinely, and this didn't surprise us, we routinely from the employers is that the Olin graduates present very differently from other students. Um, it's as if they have two years or three years of work experience before they get employed. Um, they, they work well on a team. Um, in general, they don't have an attitude. Um, I mean, in, in some of the elite engineering schools, it's as if the, um, the graduates are doing you a favor by interviewing with your company. You know? um, that doesn't happen much at Olin. Um, they know that they're there to uh, solve problems to, on a team, uh, define it, uh, do it within budget and on time. And, and they may not have the competence themselves, but they are comfortable developing a team that does. Um, so, and that's exactly the language. And, and the way this works, if you, because the average kid done, let's say, at least 20 um, team-based projects, when they graduate, yeah, they have, a, they have a transcript like everyone else. But they also have a three-ring binder with 20 tabs in it, and each tab shows the pictures of the hardware they built and the testimonials from the client about how it worked. And when you present the employer with that, you're speaking their language. Now they know uh, what they're getting, and they really uh, like them. So the third thing that's interesting about this, besides their, you know, the surprising percentage who went on to graduate school and the um, unsurprising responses from industry about their their teaming and their technical competence is where they went. So um, now that we're 20 years out, we can begin to see some patterns settling. One of them is about half of all Olin alumni live in two cities, San Francisco and Seattle. Okay. And they didn't come from those cities. I mean, we're 3000 miles away. Um, why? Um, and it's because the education that they've received and their way of thinking about technical competence uh, resonates more immediately with um, with the industries in those cities. They're, they are, you know, for example, um, if you're an engineer, this won't be, you will already know this, So, but not everybody is. So there are companies on the East Coast, uh, let's just pick on IBM for a minute because IBM is not going to get hurt. Um, IBM's organization is global. Um, they have quite a reputation for having done amazing things with research and development. But if you walk in the front door in a place like Armonk, New York, with their headquarters, it feels uh, very corporate. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there, there are offices with cubicles and there are engineers with, with uh, workstations. And, you know, it looks like you could eat off the floor. It's really nicely. And, you know, they have a place to eat and so on. If you go into Google, it's completely different. Uh, you can't really tell where, where the headquarters are. There, people don't really have cubicles. You, you can see through the glass to all the doors. And there's a kitchen out there. And people are wearing Levi's and they're eating anytime they get hungry. It's basically for free. Um, folks ride in on their bicycles and they ride out when they go home. I think the philosophy is different. They, they would like to um, create an, a desirable work environment for the clientele, which is their own workforce, yeah. who, so that they don't want to leave. And it's fine if you want to work there until 8 or 9 o'clock at night. Um, and so it's different. It's, that's more like a college campus. And, and also the way they think about problems is much more the way it happens at Olin. So it's, it has a natural magnet. And also it doesn't hurt that their starting salaries are substantially higher than the sure. ones for more, more traditional companies too. So, so I'm curious, given the, the number of projects, the number of products they've worked on, and the fact that with Babson Nextdoor, you, you had them all working on their own startups – how many went the small company route and or created their own companies? Because that's where I would have guessed they would really over-index relative to, to many other schools. Well, you're right. There is some data on this. Um, it, it's hard. The numbers are so small. It's very hard to be, you know, if we put error bars on it from a statistical point of view, it would be pretty large. But one of our alumni did a study on this and concluded that the Olin alumni are multiples of times more likely to have started be involved in a startup company that's successful than those that even at schools like Caltech and MIT and Stanford. Um, again, small numbers, but nevertheless, um, a startup environment that Olin itself is, uh, the aspiration to try something new is very strong. And we have a number of uh, alumni who've done extremely well at, at that sort of thing which I think someday um, will be an enormous asset to Olin when it comes to you know, philanthropy and so on. Sure. Uh, but, you know, they're like the oldest one is 35 or something. So we have a ways to go. Well, oh, one of the nice things about the kind of thing they're going into, right, is some of the world's richest people aren't yeah. that old, right? <laughs> they got it through right. this way. So, so you shared that right from the start, part of the mission of Olin and the setting up of this was to have a wider impact on undergraduate engineering yes. education. So can you describe sort of, once you got this up and running, how you went about sort of building that into the model when you started the collaboratory and thinking about how you would share the learning of what was going on? In there? Yes. Uh, well, there's stages to this. Um, the first stage was can you make a model that's any better than what's already out there? I mean, there may be a reason why everybody teaches engineering this way. Um, so that was some fear that we had and the urge, urging to do really bold things. Because if you just tinkered with the curriculum, it wasn't going to make much of an impact. So we tried a lot of outrageous experiments in that first year. And I may have told you about that already yeah. during the Olin Partner year. The uh, next thing was, as we began to think about how to, how to normalize this, how to bring it into a structured setting with a classroom and grades and so forth. We, um, we thought deliberately that if we had two ways of implementing this idea 
And one of those ways would have made Olin really unique, that we can do this because we're so small, or we can do this because every student on campus is an engineer, and so forth. Or we could do this in a way that the uh, program is easily accessible to a state university in Alabama or in Kansas. Okay, We always went the other route. We always went the Alabama or Kansas route. It, make it accessible. Don't and this is this, you know, as a president of a college, you'll understand this. A lot of times in a boardroom, uh, institutions are looking for a niche, which is some as a protection against being overtaken by a big state university next door. Mm-hmm. And so you look for uniquenesses in your program that can't be dip- replicated by the neighboring big state U, right? So this is our differentiator in the market. Well, Olin went the opposite way. We looked for things that could be duplicated. Obviously, there's some differences. Nobody does the Olin partner year. Nobody does the um, candidates weekends thing that Olin does for admission. But when you create the courses, the courses should be accessible. Another way of seeing this, which is somewhat controversial, even at Olin, is our decision to seek standard engineering accredited degrees. So, in, in you know, for listeners who aren't in engineering, you may not know this, but engineering uh, is a discipline which is monitored by an independent accreditation board called ABET, which used to mean Accreditation Board for Engineering and Technology. And this is a group of peers from other major engineering schools who come by with a set of standards, and you have to do a self-study, you have to have a visitation committee, and you have to provide evidence that your graduates meet standards and so forth. Almost every state engineering school in the country has to be accredited or the state legislature has a lot of questions about sending you money. Um, So, and by the way, about 85% of the engineers in this country are educated at state institutions. So if you're going to have an impact, you really should be accredited um, because otherwise you're inaccessible to those people. So those are the kinds of decisions we made at the beginning to, and that's before we really ran into outside institutions. Those were just sort of baked into our philosophy. Then along came 2008. The financial crisis hit, and we were worried about financial stability. I mean, if it wasn't nailed to the deck of the ship, we threw it overboard because we were trying to save money. Um, And one of the things we noticed about that time is we kept having these visitors show up. Um, How annoying is that, right? And these people came from China or from India or from... Europe, and they just kept coming and they say, we want to see your campus. We didn't tell them to come and see us or even, and faculty were saying, go away. I'm busy. I've got this stuff to do. And we realized, no, that's not, I mean, hey, they came halfway around the world. Now, honestly, I don't think they came halfway around the world just to look at Olin. I mean, there's a few other neighbors we have in town that are worth seeing, you know, like Harvard and MIT and Northeastern and Brandeis and so on. Uh, so they came here to see them, but said, look, we're that close. Let's spend an extra day. So I took a deep breath and said, I don't know how this works, but, um, this is important. Uh, these people are coming with a clipboard and they're willing to take notes and they want to make change in their education. Isn't this our mission? So I went to a dear faculty member at Olin, very solid academic and, and clever, uh, Lynn Stein. And I asked her if she would help us find a way to, um, to make their visit worthwhile. And I said, my goal is to never say no. 
Okay. I may say not now, or you can do it on the weekend. Um, and I'm hoping that you will help us develop faculty attitudes that will do this as well. This was not a very popular thing to do, by the way. Um, faculty were busy. There's a lot of uncertainty about budgets, and they didn't see this as being central to the mission of the school. And by the way, I gave Lynn essentially no budget. She had no discretionary money. She still had to teach the same things she did before. But now she has a new job of being the Pied Piper in the faculty meetings to try and get people to join her. That was in 2009. We called it the I2E2, which is an acronym. I, you know, some kind of initiative for engineering education. I don't even remember what it stands for now. Um, anyway, uh, we had a lot of visitors and we just um, never said no. This then grew, um, and I also found that American engineering schools are very well regarded overseas. Um, it took me, I mean, I knew this actually before I started at Olin, but because I had graduate students at other institutions, it's very common to get them from the Middle East and from Asia, for example. And one of the things you find out is that engineering is um, a coveted profession, particularly in those societies. Um, I know students and parents who said, medicine, eh, that's okay. But engineering, if you could get an engineering degree from the United States, you know, we'd be really proud. So they're coming here to get engineering degrees, um, graduate schools in the U.S., which is really um, amazing. And then um, that's why they came to look at these schools in the U.S. We discovered a phenomenon uh, through the World Bank. So I have a good friend, uh, Jamil Salmi, who was the head of tertiary education at the World Bank for something like 20 years. And he wrote the World Bank's strategic plan for knowledge-based economy. Um, and you know, the World Bank is about eliminating poverty. Um, and they've forever been worried about K-12 education. But they started getting interests from countries to build higher education institutions, which they'd not done before. And they decided to entertain these for real. But they said, well, how do you know? You get this proposal from Africa to create four universities, and it's got like a bazillion dollars in the budget, and it's got 800 pages. How do we know? Is this, this did they ask the right questions? Do they have the right people? So they said, well, let's look for somebody who's done this before. So I got this call from Jamil Salmi, who said, can you come down to the World Bank and just tell us about Olin? And I said, well, sure, but, you know, it's not the same thing to be building a school in in uh, Needham, Massachusetts, 20 miles from Harvard with a lot of funding and doing this in Africa or in Latin America. Not, yeah, yeah, we know. We just want to hear how it goes. That's led to essentially a lifelong partnership and a lot of other requests to travel. So then I wound up doing travel and giving talks, and I think other people in the college have as well. Um, and we discovered two things from these observations. Um, American engineering schools are used to being number one in the world. They don't worry that they're not good enough and they don't worry that people won't come and show up and pay tuition to go to their schools. So if you show up on their front door and you knock and you say, excuse me, MIT, uh, we think you're doing this all wrong. I mean, we have these, you know, a couple dozen people in a farmhouse out in Needham and we've been trying stuff and there's a better way. Good luck with that. All right. Yeah. I mean, any sane person would say, who are these nut jobs that have just shown up? Um, you don't change engineering education very easily 
by uh, actually by any means. On the other hand, um, from the World Bank, we discovered there's a global phenomenon which you know about. The BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, have developed a middle class for the first time. And it's been a rather rapid thing. And the, the greatest um, need of the middle class, the greatest interest is education for their children. So there's this huge tidal wave of interest in finding a university seat for their kids so they can get an education. But the, and so the BRIC countries have been on a panic scale building new universities for about 20 years. Um, in China, there, you know, for a while at least, they were building a, a new campus about the size of UCLA about every 90 days. Um, this is, of course, at a time when in America, we're seeing institutions go away. Okay, And, and yeah. now, of course, we have um, a political climate in which people don't respect higher education at all. We're seeing lots of polls about this, and government is hesitant to make investments in science, even during a pandemic. Um, so it's been stunning to look at that difference. So that meant uh, we had an opportunity in Brazil to help build another university from a blank sheet of paper. This is called INSPER. It's in Sao Paulo. Um, it had already started a new business school with some mentoring from Harvard Business School. And we were brought in as the mentor for the engineering part. Um, we've had engagements in all over the place. In, in uh, Singapore, in Korea, in England. There's a new university going on in England now, in Hereford, that has highly influenced by Olin. So, so there's all this work abroad. By the way, this was not obvious that the board saw this as central to what we were doing. Uh, I remember arguments in the boardroom about, what, you're going to help Brazil build an Olin? Wasn't it our job to make American universities better? Um, you're just giving away all of the great ideas and then we'll have to compete with them, right? And so we had a lot of discussion about that. I said, have you ever thought about this? If you go to Apple Computer today, there's a, there's a, public, there's a visitor's entrance. And when you go in, you have to leave your phone at the front desk and you sign in. Um, then you have an escort and you have this special tag that says, you know, he's a visitor. So you hear the doors close as you walk down the hallways. Why is this? Because they're afraid you're going to steal some ideas. And that's where you come from on the board when you're in industry. So I understand why you're worried about this. Now, go visit Harvard, all right? It turns out nobody knows you're there. Um, you can walk into the back of any classroom that you want. You can probably tape the whole thing on your phone. And they're not worried that somebody's going to steal it because you can't get universities to adopt an idea that happened across the street. Um, much less, you know, so, so the culture is very different. So I don't think that anybody's going to create an Olin tomorrow because they saw this uh, or in Brazil either. What did happen, though, is that Olin developed a reputation first abroad for being the leading edge university. Um, it, it really in engineering uh, in engineering innovation. Uh, people really were amazed at what they saw. And of course, our faculty. I mean, it's one thing to tell them about, and it's what I do. I'm on the road. And I'm just talking head. You know, Olin's doing all this cool stuff. So the whole goal of that is to get them to visit. Um, once they visit, I can't do anything about it if our folks disappoint. Um, they don't disappoint. Yeah. The stuff that goes on at Olin is jaw-dropping in terms of the depth and the quality and the, 
and the uh, innovation uh, on steroids that happens. Um, and we could talk a long time about that. But the, but the fact is um, they leave Olin uh, even more impressed than they were before they came. Then along comes MIT. Um, and in 2017, maybe, um, a great colleague. In fact, now I'm hanging out at MIT, right? I have a, a visiting faculty appointment for the year at uh, the Aero and Astro Department at MIT. And one of my colleagues is Ed Crawley, who's also one of my heroes. Ed is an innovator in education from MIT that started two things globally. One of them is called CDIO, which is Conceive, Design, Implement, and Operate a Curriculum for Engineering globally which has been adopted by quite a few universities now. And the other one is he was asked by MIT to take some time off and go to Moscow and become the founding president of a school called the Skolkovo Institute of Technology, or Skoltech, which I believe was um, a Putin priority. Um, the idea there was that, well, you know, Russia wants to have a, a high-tech community in kind of their own Silicon Valley. So just outside of Moscow, they they made a contract with MIT to help, and they sort of require all of the high-tech companies to locate their R&D facilities in this little park um, and create a university there. So Ed uh, told me, actually, when I'm talking with him when he was just finishing that job, he says, I want to come back to MIT, and I want to rethink undergraduate engineering education at MIT. And he says, this isn't easy to do. So for the same reason we were talking about before, I mean, MIT is always at the top of everybody's ranking. So why should they change anything? Um, I mean, they're doing pretty good. So he had an idea and he commissioned um, a woman, Dr. Ruth Graham from London, who happens to be an engineer, but she's been a pretty prolific consultant in higher education in Europe um, to do a study, a benchmarking study of the, the most respected um, and the most innovative engineering programs in the world. So I believe she had at least 50 um, highly qualified, you know, deans of engineering, provost presidents, and so on many continents. And she interviewed them at, at length, took all kinds of notes, and then asked them these questions for rankings and looked at whose name popped up. And this is, of course, published by MIT. And it turns out, much to everybody's surprise, especially me, Olin wound up being number one in the world in the first category and number two in the second one. Um, now, this, of course, creates some anxiety and <laughs> maybe some interest on the part of the faculty at MIT. And Ed used this masterfully to uh, persuade his colleagues that maybe they shouldn't just rest on their laurels. There are other schools that are catching up. Um, and they've launched a really amazing program there called the NEAT program, the New Engineering Education Transformation. And I'm getting a chance now, well, I would if we didn't have COVID, seeing it up close. Um, I'm seeing it over Zoom anyway. And um, it's, it's pretty nascent. They've only had, I think, one cohort that's graduated so far. And so they're, they're expanding it across the institute. Um, that um, gave us credibility on campus, I mean, on the U.S. as well. So, again, if you want to be, what is it? The prophet is never respected in his hometown. So you have to go to other towns first. And then when the other towns tell your neighbors that you're pretty cool, then you get more invitations to the party. Yeah. Can, can I ask you, in one of your writings, I saw about um, the partnership with University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Um, 
I'm not sure where that happened in the sequence relative to MIT, but yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about how that came about. Did you look for a range of those partners and, and, and sort of ha- how that materialized? Yes, that was a very important partnership for our group. And it happened before the MIT thing. That was maybe um, not, not long after we created the, um, the nascent collaboratory. The, um, the situation is this, um, and I'll tell you some of the personalities. These things always happen by uh, opportunistic um, uh, you know, things that show up. One of them is a, is a woman, uh, Linda Katehi, who at that point I had spent time with on NSF panels in Washington. I had spent some time in Washington. I was chair of the Engineering Advisory Committee for NSF for a while. And she was on that committee as well. We got to know each other. She's she has a long history. She was dean of engineering at Michigan. She was was um, um, no, she was head of electrical engineering at Michigan and then dean at Purdue. And then she moved on to um, Illinois as the provost. And so she contacted me and said, you know, we would like to come and see what you're doing because we understand you have fifty percent women engineering program. And we talked about that on our campus. And a lot of our folks uh, think that's not possible. And so we want to see how that works out. This led to one thing led to another. And um, the dean of engineering at the time, um, also a really good friend, uh, Ilasanmi Adesida, who happens to be Nigerian, but is absolutely brilliant, well-published engineer, um, became very interested. And then she had a plan for inviting the faculty to uh, engage in this, which she called the iFoundry, I think for Illinois Foundry. And it was a cross-cutting approach in which you invited faculty members from any department uh, to identify a colleague in a different department who was a partner with thinking about a fundamental educational experiment which couldn't be done in your department alone. So it needed to cross departmental boundaries. And now I'm going to make up some of this because I'm not exactly (laughs) sure of the details, but I believe what happened is that once you identified a partner, you made an application to join the iFoundry as a fellow. Um, If it was accepted, then you got some support, like um, maybe a month of summer pay, um, a reduction in one course of teaching, and access to two resources which are absolutely unique. Number one is a group of students who volunteered to be um, pioneers in creating new things, which, because without that, you have a lot of student anxiety about trying something completely new. And secondly, access to experimental course titles that had already been cleared by the academic uh, committees. Because as you probably know, getting permission to offer a new course, particularly if it crosses department boundaries, is a big deal. So that was the environment. Um, we had some really eager and brilliant faculty members at Olin who wanted to do this, uh, one of whom is now the provost at Olin, Mark Somerville. And we met uh, up with our colleagues in Illinois, made a trip there. They decided to come faculty now and tour Olin. And one of them, Dave Goldberg, who was a quite well-known computer science faculty member at Illinois, really got taken with this idea. And he became kind of the... the uh, point of contact, the, the primary leader on the Illinois side. And he'll tell you, he's, what he said was, 
there's something he calls the Olin effect that he that he found stunning. It was attitudinal, cultural. It wasn't like, oh, they took this different textbook. It was, they just, they believe they're engineers right off the bat, and they're acting like engineers. And he decided they could try some of this. Olin's curriculum is so different that you couldn't, like, adopt the whole thing. But he took two or three ideas, and he decided maybe they could adapt them, and they began to explore that. And over the period of about five years, they pretty successfully transplanted and adapted three of these key ideas into the curriculum at Illinois. And then they decided this was a big, big enough deal that Dave Goldberg uh, was convinced that higher education in general needs to change now. So he decided to retire, took early retirement in Illinois. He became uh, now uh, an international consultant in higher educational transformation. And he and, and Mark Somerville have written a book called The Whole Engineer. Yeah, A Whole New Engineer. That's the name of the book. Uh, and this documents the partnership between Illinois and Olin, and it shows the principles could be done at any scale at any other university. And this was done before the MIT study. We also did, and that one was kind of happenstance. I think Illinois picked us, um, and we scrounged around for resources to make it happen. Then we decided, we're also worried about is this for real? I mean, this is working too well. Maybe it's an accident. Maybe there's something about what we're doing that predisposes this to work, but it wouldn't work at a more general campus. So we decided to look for a campus with very different student populations than ours. And our team found the University of Texas at El Paso, um, which is one of the largest Hispanic producing engineering communities in the country. Um, and And of course, they're a state institution but they're also right on the border with Mexico. They have a high percentage, relatively high percentage of the kids who actually go across the river every day from Mexico to enroll. Um, they do not have candidates weekends for admission and highly selective SAT scores. It's pretty much uh, open enrollment. Um, if you want to do this and you, and you have a high school credentials, you know, you're welcome. And that's kind of what they do. So this sounded like if it's going to be only true for students with these elite backgrounds, we'll see it in spades. And we've worked with them for quite a few years, um, and they are seeing similar uh, transformational behavior in their students to what we found. And and so that gave us a great deal of confidence that there is something here. In fact, the more I thought about it, the more I began to realize um, this actually doesn't have anything to do with engineering. Um, this has to do with the way people learn. And this happened when I got visited by another inspirational guy, Dennis Lipke. Have you ever heard of Dennis Lipke? No. Nope. Um, Dennis um, is the founder of something called the Big Picture Company. Uh, it's in Providence. Um, they do uh, transformational education in minority inner city schools uh, across the world. I think most of them in North America. Something like 60 high schools where the graduation rate is abysmal. I mean, like 25%. And um, the, the curriculum has just a disaster and they come in and they transform it. And a few years later, there's a very high percentage of kids who matriculate at four-year institutions. But the curriculum is very Olin-like, which I didn't know. Um, they have students work in teams. They worry about a real project. Uh, in fact, they give them a real project to start with. There's been a, a feature-length film 
that NBC News did on Dennis Litke some 20 years ago or something like this, which provides more detail. And there's an, in fact, his latest project, the last time I went to visit him, um, he has something called College Unbound. He came to see me because he wanted to create a college model on this, not just high schools. The College Unbound is a college that has no buildings or resources. Uh, in fact, what it does, it meets in a K-12 school after hours because all evening the buildings are empty. Um, and all of the students are either inmates in prison or they're on parole or they're recently released from prison. All of them. Um, the average age is somewhere in the mid-30s. It was the most inspirational place I've ever been to. Uh, all of the students are interested in being entrepreneurs because they realize they're not likely to get their resume picked out of the stack and get interviewed at IBM. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Um, so they're going to have to create their own business. And they do really well, by the way, in the competitions in their division that Babson College holds for entrepreneurial behavior. So, okay. So it's possible to take these ideas and apply them to populations who are not engineers and are not prepared at all for college and get transformational outcomes. So this is sort of the dawning on me that this isn't about engineering. This is about how people learn. And I, I think this is, it sounds like you, you've got the origin story of the Coalition for Life Transforming Education, that, that, that this kind of experience led to that generalization of the model. It did. It was one of the early realizations. The most recent ones of these happened a few years ago when I'm sitting on stage at commencement at Olin and I'm watching the kids walk across the stage uh, and get their degree. Now, Olin, this is one of those quirky coincidences. Olin is so small. I mean, we graduate somewhere between 70 and 80 kids every year um, that having a commencement ceremony is kind of a a surprise because it's so short. I mean, you could do the whole thing in half an hour if you did it like we did at a big school. And parents came all the way around the world to hear for this. So we had a little extra time. So we decided we would start some new traditions. One of them is when we call a student's name out to walk across the stage, we ask the student ahead of time to give us 15 words that they would like to have the announcer read as in their own words about their time at Olin before they get to my hand so that I can shake it, okay? Um, this is quite interesting, turns out. Um, if, if you were thinking about adopting something on your campus that's, that's very telling and entertaining, this was not a bad idea. So, I mean, the, you get strange things happening. A lot of them, well, thank you, mom and dad, for all the support that you've given over the years. It's, yes, I understand that. One time we had a, a group of, three students in a row because we put them in alphabetical order and they decided to pool their resource of 15 <laughs> words and make 45 and they wound up selling a little story. That was a surprise. Um, and we had one time where one of the young men on in the line decided to use his 15 words to propose marriage to one of the young women who was walking across the stage a little while later. So you never know what's going to happen with these kids. But I began to see, my eyes were open and I could see something else is happening. When a very high fraction of these kids, when I remember them when they arrived in first-year students, and then see them now walking across the stage as seniors, they were different people. Um, they not only had an education, they had a good start on a calling in life. 
and I began to get letters from parents. I mean, as a college president, I'm sure you've seen this. Um, presidents are a little bit like a priest. They, people will tell them things they don't tell anyone else. And I began getting letters from parents. What did you do to my kid? Uh, this is not the same kid. I remember when they graduated from high school, they were really smart in math and science, but they were pretty geeky. And they had never been on a date. And we were kind of worried about how they would do if we dumped them out at Big State U. But if we put them at Little Olin, they couldn't get lost. And so we felt it was pretty safe. And they were kind of fragile. And now it looks like they're ready to go on the TED stage. These kids have a mission. I don't know what we're going to do with them now because we can't talk them out of doing things, but they're going to do it. Um, and they said, you do not know how important that is to our family um, to see them transformed like this. And we began to realize that college is not about learning things. You know, a, a, good, a good education changes what you know, but a great education changes who you are. And the high fraction of these people were completely different now. Um, that's the dawning of, well, what do you want most for your graduates? Do you want them to get a job at a high paying job at a company? Is that all you care about? Um, I have two daughters also. I'll tell a little bit about that. Both of them had SAT scores in math and science that was slightly higher than it was in the verbal end. Neither of them went into science and technology. Um, one of them started out and uh, to be a creative writer in English and wound up majoring in economics with a minor in entrepreneurship and tried to start a company for a year um, with you know, some MIT grads. After a year, she came home and said, this is just not who I am. Uh, I, this is, I don't get any sense of purpose out of this. I'm sitting in my apartment with a computer and I'm monitoring the purchasing behaviors of women in Sao Paulo, Brazil or something. I just know I, this is not who I am. So I said, well, that's very inconvenient. We already spent all our money to get you this degree. What are you going to do now? And she says, well, I want to teach K-12 in the inner city. And I said, well, that's great. How are you going to get educated with that? Because we don't have any nickels left. And she decided to go back to graduate school. And she got a master's degree. There was a special fellowship for kids who were willing to devote their career to uh, inner cities. And for the last seven or eight years, this is what she's been doing. Is that a failure? I mean, she could have made more money. Um, sure. Uh, this is who she is. To me, that's what a transformational education is. Education is more than uh, graduation rates <clears throat> and starting salaries. It's finding out who you are. Um, so that's kind of the origins. And, and actually, I got pushed by uh, a dear friend who's the president of a private foundation to, to um, do something about this. He said, okay, I think you're right. Why don't you pick up the phone and call uh, half a dozen university presidents who you think might be like-minded and see if you might want to get together at an airport and talk about this. And of course, this is after we had seen the data from Gallup on this, right. where Gallup had done a survey of alumni about what really matters in higher ed, very large survey, something like 100,000 alumni. And they came out with a surprising result that two answers, two questions when you probe them with alumni were most highly correlated with well-being in midlife. And the two questions were, number one, someone cared about me as a person. How strongly do you resonate with that while you were an undergraduate student? Yeah. And the second one was, 
um, you 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 had opportunities and engagement with applying what you learned while you were still a student. So so in essence, college is not about books and tests. College is about life. And every year, the things that you learn are things that you can imply in the lives of people around you. And it's, so it's not about this diploma and this expertise. It's about your initiative and your, and your motivation in life. Those two things, when we got everybody together um, around a conference table at O'Hare Airport, um, lots of head nodding, lots of people saying, yes, we're seeing this at our institution too. The heartbreaking thing about the Gallup data, the percentage of American alumni who report that they had that experience. If you have the experience, the data shows it doubles your well-being in midlife. But only 3% of American alumni report that's what they had. That's bad news, but it's also an opportunity um, with rel- because those, those experiences are rampant in American higher ed, almost everywhere. It's just that the students are not engaging in them. And the reason is it's not mainstream. It's, it's some kind of extracurricular thing, or it's not recognized by the institution. So we said, we can do something about that. Let's work on pilot projects that will mainstream those ideas so that every student that's enrolled will be exposed to experiences that will make both of those things happen before they graduate. That's where we're at right now. Well, if there's an opportunity for Chatham, we're on board. It's definitely <laughs> part of what we talk about with transformational education. I, I think you've touched on some of them already, Rick, but I, I'd be curious if you look back beyond the financial crisis, what, what was the biggest challenge you faced at Olin and how did you address it? Well, there are, it's, it's, this is another six hours of interview. Um, <laughs> These are all startup things. One of the things that I discovered, and again, since doing this now, I've uh, become consultant to, um, to a lot of institutions, largely abroad, who are trying to start a new institution from a blank sheet of paper. Um, and one of the things that you find out is if you're starting a new institution, uh, people come there mostly because they are drawn to opportunity. Um, they often have uh, idealistic ideas. This is not because of prestige, because nobody's heard of the place. Um, this is about, so, so it's about um, deep-seated uh, calling or aspiration to do something important with your life, something bigger than self. That's the idea. That's great. That means that, I mean, you couldn't pay them enough to have the kind of passion that they have to do this. But there, because it's new, no one actually knows what this is going to be. So they all have their own little private um, vision of what this is going to become. And then every month that goes by, it winds up not doing what you thought it was going to be uh, and changing and going to a different direction. So managing expectations winds up being a big issue in the beginning. Um and then there are some practicalities. So I mean, probably the, the most universal experience that I've seen uh, when people start a new institution, starting an institution has three phases to it. Um, one is the invention phase. Next is the realization phase. And the third is the growth and sustainability phase. Okay. The invention phase, I would say, happens um, from the day, starts in the day you hire the first employee. And it ends on the day you teach your first classes. So in that period, there's no way you could actually qualify as a college. You don't have classes going on. There are no students there. 
And yet you're going to make, I'm going to say, 100,000 decisions that will determine the culture and the mission and the, everything about the school. And you're going to do it without any data and without any experience. And it's mostly by intuition. Okay, That's managing expectations. It's a big issue. The second phase happens on the day you teach your first class, and it ends on the day you graduate the first students. And that's when the rubber meets the road. I mean, you, you thought this idea of having a project course was great until you started doing it, and then you found out that all kinds of practicalities got in the way. And then, of course, there is the growth and sustainability phase at the end. By then, a lot of your visions about what the budget might look like have become uh, smashed on the rocks. Um, you know witnessed the 2008 crisis for us. Um, your business model keeps changing. You don't know what your appeal is going to be in the market. How's the graduates going to do, by the way? Um, if you're, you know, I still say universities and colleges are not about endowments or buildings. They're about people. And if you have the right people, the others can be assembled. If you don't have the right people, it doesn't matter what your buildings and your endowment look like. It's not going to take off. Um, so getting the right people in place is, is really tricky. Um, let me give you one concrete example here. Uh, everybody that starts an institution from a blank sheet of paper worries about, for example, buildings. You have to meet somewhere. This would be a campus. So um, if you think of starting a college sort of like putting on a buffet dinner, some of the dishes you have to start two hours ahead, others you do right at the last minute. The buildings are the things you do two hours ahead. Uh, it's a big lead time. You have to get permits. You have to get a you know, master plan, by the, get the deeds, contracts, construction. The problem is, if you've ever built a building, you know that the architects have to do this first phase, which is called programming. Yep. Programming is what happens when the architect gets a clipboard and they go down the hallway and they interview everybody and they ask them, David, how many linear feet of shelf space do you need? And who are the three people that you interact with most frequently during the day? Um, and at the beginning, there are no people. So you can't interview anybody. In fact, you don't even have an org chart yet. So you have to guess. I think we talked a little bit about this before. Yeah, because we, we talked a little about the challenge of designing a place yes. when you didn't have the faculty and students yet. Yeah. Yes. And it's immediately obsolete from the day you yep. get the first faculty because yep. they're actually not going to use it the way the guy thought. So there's yep. that part. There's also governance is an issue. Um, people don't think about this, but um, go governance sort of sets the ceiling on what you will become. Um, you know, as you know, boards of trustees um, carry an enormous amount of responsibility and weight they're volunteers in the U.S. They're not paid for this. Um, in other countries, they're assigned to do it, but not here. Um, and they rarely have a background in higher ed. They're, they're mostly people who are successful in companies. So the president spends a lot of time trying to explain what a university is and why it's not the same thing as a large technology company. Yep. Um, board education. So I would say 25%. Um, of every board meeting is about board education. Yep. Um, and it's not easy, that in spite of the fact that people really want it to turn out easy. The problem is everybody was a student once, right. and therefore they're an, automatically an expert in yep. education because they know what it was like. And um, how did you go about building your board? You know, you didn't obviously have an alum base. You had your initial Olin trustees, but 
you know, in that first phase, a lot of board building in higher ed is often about fundraising. Well, you know, you'd been given one of the largest gifts ever in higher ed. And so, you know, I'm just curious how you thought about the profile of the trustees you wanted to, to bring on the board. Sure. Well, that, that's a, that's a very complicated thing and unique to Olin. I don't think this happens at other schools because of the unique start. Um, but at the beginning, we had five people. Olin College was five people, the four directors of the Olin Foundation and me. Um, they provided 100% of the money, and I provided 100% of the energy to build the academic program. And that was it. We we're all trustees, all voting trustees. Um, when any trustee provides all the money, their voice is pretty loud, okay? Sure. Um, I was pretty lucky that Larry Miles, who was the chair of the board, had a great deal of respect for what I was trying to do. So uh, he listened more than I think other board chairs would. Nevertheless, when it came time to add more trustees, uh, I think the recommendations of the four Olin directors were the loudest voices in the room by quite a lot. What we did, we added uh, one, we added a few trustees at a time. We added um, people who were former presidents of universities. We had at one point three former presidents of universities on our small board. So I got lots of advice. That was one thing. Um, <laughs> we had really and That's interesting advice. given that they'd chosen to start something totally new. That I, Not where I would have assumed you would naturally go. Yeah, that's right. Me either. Um, one of them is a fellow named Bill Glavin, who is absolutely amazing. Bill was the former president of Babson College, who had been highly instrumental in persuading the Babson board to sell the land to Olin to build the campus next door. And of course, there was a lot of expectations on Babson's part yeah. about how this would work out. Would Olin students take courses at Babson? Um, would Olin pay Babson for any of this? Um, what about the price for the land? Is that subsidized or is that market price? You know, all kinds of stuff. And, and Bill was marvelous. It still is. He's a, he's a dear friend. Um, he was a former vice president of Xerox um, and really good at understanding technology as a partner to business. We also had Bill Cotter, who was for 20 years the president of Colby College in Maine. Um, Bill was an attorney, um, did an enormous number of difficult things at Colby, including dealing with fraternities and dealing with, with alcohol on campus, uh, very landmark policies there. Um, and later, we had uh, Hank Riggs, whom I think you okay. know. Um, so this was when Hank stepped away from being the founding president of KGI and uh, joined us. So that was in the early days um, when we were trying to understand how will other institutions see this? What about residential life? Uh, what are you going to do about an honor code? All of that. Um, then we went through a phase where we had what I call the President's Council. And to me, this was one of the most important things that happened at Olin, both in terms of governance and also in terms of influence. So from a pragmatic point of view, it's you know one of the, the roles that the President's Council played is this is not governance. This reports to me, the President. It's the President's Council. It's not the Board's Council. It doesn't make decisions, not on budget, not on buildings, not on programs. Um, provides advice. So what I did 
uh, I decided nobody gets a chance to do this. Um, this is much less frequent than once in a lifetime to start a, to be the founding person in a college this uh, influential. So no one has enough wisdom to make all the right choices here. So I'm going to get help. So I went to immediately to the um, president of the U.S. National Academy of Engineering in Washington. I went to the dean of engineering at MIT. I went to the provost at Caltech. I went to the dean of engineering at Michigan. I went to the former president of Michigan, the chief engineer at Raytheon, chief engineer at Boeing. And we assembled this group of engineers, and I asked them a simple question. If it were up to you to have this responsibility to rethink engineering, what two or three things about engineering education would you change? Turns out everybody has an opinion on that question. I never ran into a person who didn't. And I said, fantastic. I need your help. Can you come to campus twice a year? Well, in 24 hours, it's all the meeting will take. We'll have a dinner and, and some presentations and a lot of discussion with our board of trustees. Um, that turned out to be fundamentally important to getting Olin on the right uh, track. It also it was not the, in our heads when we made it, but it also was incredibly useful at developing ownership of Olin as a kind of lab school adjacent to these other major universities that had an inside track in helping us think about designing it. So we had an advocate then on all of these campuses for what Olin was doing. Um, hugely important for our, our later trajectory as we went. So building that wound up being a farm school for next trustees. So there was a time when I think over half of our trustees came off of the President's Council, um, which was really helpful. And, and of course, at some point you get to the point where you're you're not worried that you won't exist next year or that you won't be able to attract the students. Now it's a matter of real influence. How could, does anybody on the board know Bill Gates personally? <laughs> I mean, could you call him up and see if he would meet with me? I mean, there's that kind of thing. And we said, oh, that's a different board than what we have. And by the way, those trustees probably wouldn't stay in the holding pattern for the President's Council for two years until they got voted in. They have to go directly to the Board of Trustees. Oh, and then there's fundraising, right? Um, that's quite an uh, unusual story, too. Olin's approach, which was quite successful at getting attention in higher education, was to announce on the front page of the New York Times in 1998, they were making one of the largest gifts in history to one higher education institution, one which they were creating, okay? Okay, that's cool. Everybody pays attention, but now go and try and talk to a donor about how you need their help. <laughs> what? <laughs> Weren't you the school that got this really big gift already? What did you do with all that money? <laughs> yeah, and how many students do you have? How could you possibly spend all that money on those students? Yeah. Um, it's that kind of situation um, made it difficult. So if you're known as being wealthy, you can't make the case for need. Um, you just sort of give up on that. But on the other hand, Harvard is not needy either. That's and for people sure. invest in it. So all you need to do is to become as well-known for quality and impact as Harvard, and then people will want to co-brand with you. And Olin is doing well. I think it's on the path. But, you know, it's only 20 years old. Harvard is like 300 and something years old, so we have some time to go. Yep. Raising money. Uh, in a startup environment for an undergraduate institution is not easy. 
Um, and I, I believe that in, as one of our dear friends and trustees has said, you know, if a meteorite hit the United States tomorrow and it wiped Harvard off of the planet in one fell swoop, just vaporized it, but it didn't hurt Olin, the world would not have lost very much. And I said, wait a minute, Harvard is like a really, it's, you know, there is no other, you know, yep, but she says, but there's a whole group of Ivy League institutions whose mission and whose programs overlap a great deal. They have the same quality of students, there's a cohort of them, and they all produce outcomes which are pretty similar for their students. But if that meteorite had hit Olin, the world would have lost something absolutely unique. There is no other laboratory. So Olin is actually a privately funded national laboratory for STEM education redesign. And that's precious. What is that worth to the country? Uh, you should find a donor who understands this. And so we're still looking. So if you happen to know one, David, let me know. I, I wish I had a, some spare ones to, to recommend. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, when, when you look back and you think about, you know, obviously you you had an incredibly successful tenure in, in birthing this this institution that's been so influential. What do you think were the experiences, the, the things that you had that prepared you for a role that you hadn't set out to do, but obviously you were very successful at? Are, are, are there attributes or things that you did that you think could translate into other people who will be successful as, as startup institution presidents? Well, that's, you know, it's hard to tell. You're asking the doctor to diagnose himself. Um, I, I, I think um, it's helpful to have some uh, defects in your personality, for example. Um, in my case, uh, Olin happened because of a habit that I think is pretty old of not saying no to something that I should have, okay? Um, when I came to Olin, a lot of dear friends and, and mentors wrote me long letters telling me why I should not do this, okay? This is way too risky. You're, gonna, you're throwing away your career. Um, if you stay where you are, you're likely to be more prominent in a very traditional school. And uh, you can see how well I follow directions. Um, so part of it is a is a unexplained willingness to take risk. Um, I think another thing is, in my view, it's not, it never has been a job. It's a calling. And I don't think this happened like when I got the letter from the Olin Foundation. This was in the making for 25 years. Before I moved to Olin, I had 25 years in AAU institutions and leadership, University of California, University of Southern California, University of Iowa progressive increase in responsibility along the way. Um, and, and every time I found that I was a little less, uh, I just kind of didn't fit in the, what deans are supposed to do in uh, research producing AAU institutions is look for research grants and look for faculty members who are going to get a Nobel Prize. That's, that's what you do. Mostly PhD education. Undergraduate education is kind of on autopilot. It'll, it'll work out. Yeah, every once in a while you get embarrassed by it, but you can fix it. Um, and that didn't feel right to me. I didn't know we did it. I mean, we did it at Southern Cal, and we did it at, at Iowa in particular. Things were going really well. But I cared too much about undergraduates. <clears throat> Some of it, I've discovered, has to do with whether you have children of your own. 
Um, I found it easier to find faculty members to volunteer for education committees in an engineering school if you find those that have kids who are either first or second year students at a university. Because um, the conversation at the dinner table on the weekend is completely different. Yeah. Um, and I had kids um, that, that were involved in college. So when I moved to Iowa, our younger daughter was six and our older daughter was 13. Um, and before we left, the older daughter was in a, a sophomore at the University of Iowa, and the younger daughter was ready to go to college. Um, so having that personal contact with um, kids makes quite a difference. Um, and then there were a number of you know, uh, aha moments, let's say, in my own engineering education, which made me realize something is off here. We're not doing the right thing. And I may have told you about some of these things before, like when I was an undergraduate and work in a summer job um, about. Uh, yeah. You, you yeah. Describe the bridge building. Yeah. The bridge building. Yeah. yeah. And so, so what I'm learning in school actually isn't what you do. It's an engineer. How did that happen? And then there's other things, uh, the entrepreneurship story at Southern Cal. I think I may have told you that one too. And that um, just became piling up um, concerns. Um, And then the the teachers that I had known who were extraordinarily good at what they did. And I really discovered uh, this contrast between undergraduate education and graduate education. So in a graduate program, Faculty members have this sort of completely different role. Uh, now they're sort of the um, coach of a small team or the father of a small community. Uh, they often have graduate students in their house for dinner. Um, they, they maintain contact with them for years later. I have a good friend who is an associate dean at Southern Cal. They have a, a national conference on his birthday every year. <laughs> alumni come back from all over the world to have yeah. a barbecue in his backyard. Uh, it's a family. It really is. But undergraduates, they don't even know where they went. Um, why is that? Um, and by the way, for most of neuroscience, what you find out is in late teen years and the early um, uh, early 20s are one of the most critical times for wiring your brain. And of course, there's all kinds of um, psychological needs that have to be met during those years as well. And we're just not paying attention to them. So That's I don't know great. that this packages well. Um, you know, so if you're considering doing this, um, number one, it's risky. The, the, most of the time when you step out of higher education in a traditional role when things are going well and you try to do something new, it usually doesn't work. So you better be ready for that. Okay. If you're not, if this would cause a crisis in your life, don't do it. Okay. It has to be something you can't not do. It's, it's, and then it's okay. I mean, I know a little yeah. bit about this because I have a brother who's an entrepreneur. And in a way, it's a disease, okay? You can't cure it. Um, it never really goes away. You get passionate about this idea. Uh, you say yes without thinking it through. You wake up in the morning with a kind of buyer's remorse. And you say, well, what do I have to do to make this into the best idea that I've ever had? And you live it for a while. And if you're lucky, most of them aren't, um, and it succeeds. And it gets taken over by somebody else. And then you wind up being in this odd position, of essentially being handcuffed to a desk as a vice president, but, but unable to make any decisions because 
the reason they kept you on is they don't want to compete with you. Um, and they sort of lock you in a cage for three years until they get a start and then release you. And I've seen this um, up close. And so then you, then you say, I can't take this anymore. I'm just going to retire. And I said, yep, I've heard that too. And in a year, you'll be back at it. There'll be another idea and it starts over again. So some of that is in your DNA. So, so given that you were fortunate to find your calling and obviously really thrived in it, what was it that led you to decide it was, was the right time to, to, to stop, to, to, to step down? Yeah, uh, really important. Um, as again, I said, when this coalition started, when I realized that this was not about engineering, um, when I could see that the transformational impact that this kind of education where people work in teams, where they work on things that matter. I, I, would, I would say there's four characteristics to this. You only study things that matter. You forget about having to get the encyclopedia to figure out what anthropology is before you start studying it. No, you study things that matter, like the grand challenges that are facing the planet today. You only study things in context. So we spend so much time taking them out of context to put them into the, the, the boundaries of a discipline and never put it back into context when you're done, uh, which does nothing for society. Study them in context. Study them in teams. So that instead of putting everybody in a, in a cubicle with a multiple choice test, uh, you tell them to work with people you are completely different backgrounds to build expertise in a problem that matters. And finally, and this is the most important thing, this is probably the main reason why I stepped away, um, the purpose of education has to change. It's not about knowing things. It's not about becoming uh, a critic who sits in the stand as, as Teddy Roosevelt's uh, speech at the Sorbonne talks about. It's about being in the arena. So I would call this the purpose of education to envision what has never been and to do whatever it takes to make a better world. Every educated person should have that as the goal of their life. Uh, and then if you look at the grand challenges that we're facing now, climate change, uh, global pandemics, maybe you've heard of a, pan of a pandemic lately. Sure. Um, there is the problem with cybersecurity and cyber disinformation, nationalism in the age of nuclear weapons. Um, there is also the giant explosion of human population on the planet in the last hundred years, going from one billion to eight billion. Um, this is not going to last, I guarantee you. Nature has ways of leveling that curve off. Um, and if we're going to stop that, it's going to be because we think differently and we act differently as a species. Um, so I guess I'd say the ideas occurred to me that some of what Olin is doing um, has in it the seeds of rethinking how education needs to work for the 21st century across the globe. So while I still have a few grains of sand left in my hourglass, I thought I might spend it trying to do something about that. I think you, you answered my final question, which is obviously, is life after being a president and agreeing with you? And it sounds like you have something to keep you very, very busy for, for, for many years to come. So, Well, if my health holds up and if I find people who are willing to listen, I am going to continue to push this because I really believe it's important. Well, Rick, you th thank you so much for taking so much time to speak with us. This has been incredibly enlightening and I really enjoyed the conversation and chance to get to know you. Wish you all the best with this very, very important mission that you're now embarked on. Thank you, David. It's been a privilege and I'm so delighted.
that you've spent so much time just to hear this story. Thanks very much. You take care. Thank you.